Welcome to Emmaus Church community. My name's Nathan, and I'm happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We will hand one to you. Inside the Bibles are um, communication cards, and if you'd like to fill one out, contact information or a prayer request, we will process those in the morning, and we'd love to pray for you. Um, also, if you have any comments or whatever, you can put those on the cards. Isn't it interesting that there's some songs in um, the Christian faith that are singing to God? And then there's other songs in the Christian tradition that are singing about God. And then there's songs like the one we just sang where we're singing to ourselves. Like, wake up, praise the Lord, choose to, choose to acknowledge him, be here now, right? And then we, and then we turn back to the Lord. Um, that's the battle, isn't it? So I want to just invite you all the way in this morning and uh, invite you to choose to be here now. And as Daryl said, no pretending, don't try to leave stuff out, like bring it together, bring it all like you are one collective being with all kinds of dynamics and details and realities and that whole thing, all complex, the whole complex thing needs to be brought in front of the Lord. And hopefully as we open up the word, that's our trust, right, is that as we look at the word of God that we'll get some instruction and some guidance and, and this will be an experience that is powerful and made even more powerful by the fact that we're doing this together. Right? Not just as individuals, but as a community. All right, so welcome. So glad you're here. If this is your first time with us or first time in a while, today I'm wrapping up our, uh, like a back-to-school series um, called uh, Moms, uh, Monks, Moms, and Missionaries, Radicals That Show Us or Teach Us How to Live. And what I've tried to do in the last few weeks is focus on some unusual characters, some remarkable characters, characters that often kind of evoke a response in us, a strong response either way. So I've talked about monks. Almost everybody has some sort of strange response when you start talking to them about monks, specifically St. Benedict, who I'll talk to you about in just a second. We've talked about Mary last week, the mother of Jesus. Um, in, the, in the men's group, this is so interesting to me, in the men's group, which I do on Tuesday mornings, where we discuss the previous Sunday's sermon, I had a timer, nobody knew this, guess how long it took me, it took us six seconds for someone to say the word Catholic, when we're talking about, like, so interesting to me, right, there's like this almost this synonymous relationship, uh, so we talked about Mary, Mary is provocative uh, somehow, still, for many, Paul, today we're going to talk about Paul. He's considered uh, to be one of the primary proponents of Christianity, right? He writes his letters that he writes to the church are a large part of what makes up the New Testament or the Christian scriptures. And so we're going to look at, at these folks. Mary, the mother of Jesus, last week. Um, Paul today. Uh, Benedict, a few weeks ago, in case you don't know who that is, a 6th century Italian monk who creates a structure, monastic life, living in monasteries, and a guide, which is called the rule, which preserves the practice of humble, authentic Christian community through a, a series of centuries in the history of church where the church swung dramatically towards power and wealth and became almost totally inaccessible to the common person. So what we're looking at is people who have promoted Christianity, who have done an exceptional job revealing Christianity, preserving Christianity uh, to our world. And yet, these are the kinds of people, they have played a major role in the fact that you and I even know what we're talking about at some level with the Bible and Christianity. So they've preserved it. They've played a major role. And yet these are the same people who very often on a practical level, they're written off as so extreme that they really have no practical help to give us in our day-to-day -day life. And my argument over this last month has been this, that actually they are not extreme. 
in the sense that they're like far out on the outer rim of what's possible. In fact, they're radical. They're at the root. They're at the core. They're at the center or the essence of this thing that we're talking about in terms of following Jesus. And, and by this, I mean that they are examples that we should look to to follow. They are radical. They are root-like. Something about the way they live reveals that they are close to the source of life. We should look to them. We should not be like, whoa, let's stay away from polarizing figures. We should, we should recognize there's something I have to gain um, from, from learning from this, this person. This person followed Jesus well, so I should look to them in my own uh, investigation or pursuit of, of following Jesus myself. All right, so many of you have kids uh, or grandkids, and the last few weeks have been shaped significantly by this whole back-to-school movement, right? This sort of, this is the time in our year where we're back to school. And so you probably hit Target. You probably bought like the basics for back to school, like pencils or notebooks. When I was a kid, it was a new lunchbox. Every year, um, my third grader came home with a Chromebook. Uh, which, <laughs> like I had a lunchbox and you get a Chromebook uh, from your school. What's going on here? These are, the, these are considered like the basic elements of going back to school, right? Kind of getting stuff straightened up right up, up front so we have things um, ready to go. Basically, what we, you could take the last few weeks of these sermons that we've been sharing together as sort of a back-to-basics sort of boot camp for what it means to follow Christ as we enter into another season. So on the notes, there's maybe a few squares there. I encourage you to fill them out. The first week, we essentially talked about prayer. How are your conversations with God? That was the question. And the challenge was just to show up regularly for these conversations. Well, my conversations with God are dry, they're boring, they're without direction. Okay, like, let's just show up for those conversations and show up regularly and then see what happens, right? The next week, we talked about fasting, uh, and the essential question was, are you pursuing greater comfort or are you pursuing greater devotion? Challenging question. And, and the challenge, essentially, was to fast, that was the practical challenge at the end of that sermon, to engage in some kind of regular type of fasting. And many of you, more than a dozen, have shared that you're joining in some sort of informal but church-wide Wednesday fast of something, giving something, something physical, something that is connected to comfort, giving that up for spiritual purposes. Last week, we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Essentially, the challenge from the life of Mary is this. We, we looked at 12 scriptures on the life of Mary last week. It was a lot. But essentially, it boils down to this. Mary says yes to God. She says yes to God. Right? And so if we want to turn this into sort of a little four-week back-to-school basic sort of boot camp little experience, we could package it. Some skilled graphic designer could probably package this thing into a little four-part, here's back into the routine. Here's, here's some basics to remind myself about as I enter back into the fall. Part one, pray. Spend some time with God. Part two, fast. Limit physical comfort for devotional purposes. In other words, don't just run into the school year doing whatever feels good. Number three, or part three, say yes to God. Like, prioritize obedience to Jesus. There's all kinds of decisions being made right now in terms of your lifestyle, your, your uh, schedule, which things your kids are going to pursue or not. Prioritize obedience to Jesus, serving Jesus. And the last piece is what I want to talk about today in uh, today's sermon, which I've called, Paul says, watch me. Paul says, watch me. 
So let's look at a small section of the writings of Paul in the end of the Bible. It's a little letter called Philippians. He's writing to a church in Philippi, so the letter gets the name of the town. It's on page 820 if you're using this Bible. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, it's verse 820. I mean, I'm sorry, it's page 820. And as you're turning there, maybe you're like, who's this Paul guy? Quick little summary on Paul. Uh, Paul... Was, he lived a little bit after Jesus. He was a strict, very educated Jew. He spent the first half of his career working for the purity of the Jewish religion. And his main target in his effort to purify the Jewish faith was, to, was the Christians. Uh, these were the people, they called them a sect. These guys were like, they were misguided. So he was going to take these Christians out of the picture. He persecuted them. He authorizes the killing of Christians he lives about 10 years after, he comes on the scene about 10 years after Jesus is crucified, and then the Christians say resurrected from the dead. But Paul doesn't believe Jesus resurrected from the dead. So he's going to this town called Damascus to imprison some more Christians because they're the problem. And then the resurrected Jesus shows up on the road, and Paul has this mystical encounter with the one he thought was dead, and it changes the whole game for Paul. Right? Now Paul becomes a Christian and becomes a very uh, effective missionary of the Christian faith. And the, the, like the recipients of his work are not the Jews, which are kind of his, his tribe, the ones he's been working to sort of solidify for his whole first half of his career. Oh, he goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the non-Jews. And this is essentially Paul's message. Peace with God comes through faith in Christ, not by obeying all these rules that the Jewish tradition had set up. That's radical. In addition, you don't have to be Jewish to be a follower of God. That's totally new. We haven't heard that before in the Bible. Some of the Old Testament prophets foresee a time when all nations will receive the Messiah. So it's not like it's a brand new idea, but we haven't heard anybody preaching this yet. Paul comes out and he's preaching this. So he travels all around what is now Turkey and Syria and Egypt, not Egypt, uh, Greece, Italy, and he's writing, he's starting churches, and he's writing letters to these churches as he travels around. He's encouraging them, he's instructing them. And one of the later letters that Paul writes is called Philippians. He writes it with the help of his apprentice, a guy named Timothy, and he writes the letter while he's in jail. And this is interesting because Philippians is known as a letter of joy. And so you might expect to find some sort of passing remark about, while I was on the island you know, of Crete or something like, on the beach, I wrote this joyful letter. But that's not what happens. He's in jail writing this letter um, about joy. We love Philippians. The church is in love with this book because it's just so remarkable. It's got so much wealth um, in it, so many great passages. I was in a monastery for some of the summer, and in the mornings I would read one of Paul's letters in a single sitting just all the way through, which isn't that hard because they're all pretty short. But it was really a powerful experience because that's what they're meant to be. They're letters, like you read them all the way through. And I'd encourage you to try to do that this afternoon. We typically, in sermon um, preaching, we just break it up into little, little sort of sections. But um, reading through the whole thing is powerful. Let's look, however, at a few sentences at the end of chapter 4. And what I want to show you is one example of how Paul is often written off as extreme but is actually radical is actually worth following because he lives close to the root. He's worth learning from. So one way that he does this, I'll come back to that at the end of the sermon, but let me first, as we build up to it, uh, point, point out three simple observations. Here's the first. Paul's teachings, Paul's teachings are considered extreme. 
by some and increasingly in our culture. Paul's teachings are written off as extreme, but in truth, they are, they are radical teachings. They are radical. They are close to the root. Here's what I'm talking about. Philippians 4, verse 8. Check out what he writes here. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, the word there is, is inclusive. It's brethren or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, so it's inclusive. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, the word here could be translated honorable. Something that is noble is something that's worth reverence. Whatever is right or righteous or just, like the right thing, do the right thing kind of sense. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, the root of that word is the same root as the word for holy. Whatever is lovely, he doesn't mean pretty, he means of love, motivated by love. Whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is radical. This is totally, because not only is Paul addressing the personal life of the Christian, so already some people are like, well, you don't have any right to talk to me about my personal life. He's not just talking about the personal life of the Christian. He's talking about the Christian's thought life, their th our thought lives, what we think about, what we worry about, what we fantasize about, what we imagine, all these words and ideas that are running around naked in our brains because nobody can see what we're thinking. Right? That's what he's addressing. And Paul is teaching Christians about their thought life. He's instructing us about the way we use our thoughts, about how we use our minds. And you might think, as people have historically, you're going to talk about my thought life, Paul? Are you serious? You're going to talk, you're going to, that sounds a bit extreme. You're going to write about that. Why don't we talk about my actions, right or wrong? Let's keep it public. Let's keep it visible. None of this... We hear echoes in our culture, not thoughts and prayers, like let's focus on what matters, right? Actions. Can we just focus on what I do, Paul, on my public record? You sure you want to get inside my head, Paul? Because that's pretty extreme. It'd be really easy for me to write you off if you're going to sit there and focus on what's in my head. But Paul knows that what's in your head and what's in my head is not extreme. It is radical because it all starts here. This is the source, right? This is where it all comes from. This is the root. Words begin as thoughts, right? Actions, when they're babies, are called ideas. That's where they come from. Everything, like a, a destructive action, begins as a destructive thought. Your thoughts, my thoughts, lead to my words and my actions and then my habits and pretty soon my identity and then my destiny. It's all shaped initially by my thoughts. Have you ever... Have you ever said this after doing something destructive or hurtful or that you regret? Have you ever said, what was I thinking? You said that. Right. You probably don't say, what was I thinking after thinking something destructive? Because um, we don't recognize that it's begun yet. But once we do the harmful thing, once we do the regretful thing, we go, ah, oh, what, what was I thinking? Like, how did that evolve and mature into something that was so destructive? Well, it's because destructive actions always come from destructive thoughts. This is not an extreme teaching. This is a radical teaching. And this is why orthodoxy or right thinking is so important. This is why having good theology is so critical, right? 
This is, this, is, this is why a solid philosophy of parenting is worth developing because the way you view parenting is going to affect everything. This is why your ideas and your philosophy of marriage is not some pie in the sky, what does that matter? No, that is critical because it's at the core of what you will develop between you and another person. This is why a church's philosophy of ministry is so important to get pounded out and tested because everything comes from our philosophy. Paul is offering a radical teaching, not an extreme teaching in my view, an essential teaching. He's saying we need to set our minds on the source of truth and life on the root. Finally, he says, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. It's a radical teaching. Secondly, he doesn't just give radical teachings, but Paul is a radical teacher. And here's what I mean. Look at the very next verse. Look at verse 9 from Philippians 4. If you read Paul saying, think about these things, the natural question would be for you to ask, well, how do I do that? How do I stay focused on that? And Paul's response to you and me is this. All right. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, that is next level. That is so intense to me. In other words, not just my prepared sermon, not just the letter that I wrote you with carefully chosen words. No, don't use that word. Use this one. This is more accurate. Whatever you saw me do, well, I was with you, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, that to me is, is radical. You've heard the phrase, do what I say, not what I do, right? That's extreme. That shouldn't even be allowed to exist on the table of things called teaching, right? Do what I say, not what I do. That is so empty. That is so far away from the core or the truth of, of, of what is teaching. It's so far from the source of life. Adopting the do what I say, not what I do thing is a total cop-out, and you know it, right? And I know it. Um, I remember one of the years that I was, being, um, I was being examined in the process of becoming an ordained pastor in, in our church. And so this was after grad school, another four years of classes, and um, an annual exam. Me, uh, 28 at the time, in a room, this is the third year this happened, with 12 pastors. And they can ask me anything about my theology, my, um, my practice, or my character. Uh, it's all free game. And so this guy asked me a question and apparently wasn't, re wasn't really happy with my response, and so he proceeded to instruct me, which is fine, for a couple of minutes. Like, he preached at me. He, he, he told me exactly what, what I needed to do. And I was, I was innocently and sincerely not trying to test him, but I was like, oh, I don't know how to do So I said, how do I do that? It's an honest question. I looked him right, and, and I admired this guy. And I just looked right in his eye, and I said, how do I do that? And he goes, his response shocked me. He goes, well, I don't do it. But then he kind of like stiffened up again. He goes, but that's how it's done. And I remember this moment, like, so clearly, you guys. I remember where I was sitting and where he was sitting. And the reason I remember it so clearly is because that's the moment when my respect for him dropped, right? Because he was giving me empty advice. There was no power there. It was not helpful. 
set up a standard that he himself wasn't even willing to, to embrace. It's profoundly empty. It's one thing to tell somebody what to do. It's next level to show them how to do it, to guide them, to say, watch me. So Paul doesn't just give us radical teachings. That would be one thing. It'd be impressive on sort of a, I don't know, some sort of an intellectual level, perhaps. But Paul is actually not just giving radical teachings. He is a radical teacher. He is offering himself as a model to the Christians in Philippi. You know what I wrote to you guys and anything you've received from me, anything you sort of picked up from me in my speeches and my sermons, okay? And if you saw me do anything while I was with you, just do that too and you will be filled with the peace of God. I mean, that is incredible that he has such a deep, in integrated, um, yeah, like a holistic sort of uh, personification of truth that he can just sort of say, anything I said, anything I did. You can just copy me, watch me, is what, was what Paul says. And you know what's crazy? He doesn't just say it to the Philippians. In other words, he's not just like, so I was really on my game in Philippi. I was, I was, that was like the top of my career. I even told those guys, just watch what I did. No, he tells that to everybody all the time. Anybody can look at Paul. It's not just like he has office hours and he'll be like really tuned in and like buttoned up and now I'll give you the, no, it's any time. Like he's a tent maker. He's, he's doing commerce with people. There's people trying to take advantage of him. He's, he's interacting with people of different cultures. Any kind of situation where you can imagine yourself kind of dipping a little bit in your integrity or in your, man, I just didn't really demonstrate the love of God very well there. He's in that situation and he's still saying the same thing. A couple more examples. He goes to a place called Thessalonica, starts a church later, writes him a letter, and he says this, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives as well because you'd become so dear to us. You see what he's doing there? In other words, we told you the whole truth about Jesus. We also shared our life with you for several months so you could just sort of see what it looked like to follow Jesus. We didn't just teach it to you, we showed you. And then to the Corinthian church, which is famously messed up, that's, that's, they're the ones that are messed up. First Corinthians, you hear about all kinds of craziness. Paul says this, and he makes it really direct so they get it. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He says that. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's totally impressive to me. Sets a standard, Right? So this is, a, this is a message for parents. That's what this is. And this is a message for grandparents. And this is a message for mentors. And this is a message for Emmaus Kids volunteers. By the way, I meant to start with that. Thank you, several of you who served upstairs at the 9 o'clock. I hear it's been packed up there, so thank you for serving up there. And this is a message for engineers and for realtors and for teachers, for nurses, right? This is a message for anybody who calls themselves a Christian and interacts with people in the world who are going to be looking at you, the Christian, or the person who is somehow declaring that they're interested in following God for an example or for a demonstration of something that will counter. Please tell me there's another alternative to what we're hearing about in the news about Christians, Please tell me there's something different than that that I can actually hold on to as something worth following. Paul shows us that the root of true Christian influence is modeling. It's modeling. Are you looking for God? Paul says, watch me. 
He says, watch me. I'll show you the way to the source of life. I'll show you the way. I'll be the guide. You can watch me. And most of us, most of the time, when we hear that kind of language, there's something inside us that says, oh, heck no. Don't put that on me, right? That is way too much pressure. That is way too much responsibility. We can't afford to shirk back from that responsibility, friends. We can't afford. We can't afford to do it. I've been thinking a lot about dads the last couple weeks because we're getting ready for the men's weekend in a month. Dads, so I'm going to talk to you guys for a second. We, we cannot accept this extreme version of so-called parenting to continue. That is, that version of parenting that says, do what I say, not what I do. That is bankrupt. It has no place in our homes. It cannot continue. We need to do better than that. We need to model the faith for our sons. We need to model the faith for our daughters, right? This is what I hear. I heard it last week. And you hear this stuff all the time too. My, my, my kid is drinking after school. And, uh, but you know what? So did I. And I just, I'm not sure what to do. As if, as if your mistakes in your past disqualify you from parenting now, right? Or this. And this goes straight at it. I'm just going to tell you. Yeah, my, um, my son's uh, looking at pornography and um, I don't feel like I'm the one to confront him because I don't want to be a hypocrite. That thing, right? And I, I know the struggle's real, right? I know the battle is, is real. But there, friends, there is only one way to do this well. There's only one option that is even close to being valid in terms of a pursuit of treating this kind of challenge called parenting. I mean, officially, I guess you've got three options. You've got say nothing, which is basically akin to just extracting yourself from the role of parent. You might as well just pull yourself completely out of the game if you don't say anything, right? And then there's option two, which is to say, do what I say, not what I do. But that's advice without power. That's advice without power, and it erodes respect. Smell right through it, right? I mean, I think back to that pastor who lectured me. I was 28 years old. I think he was probably 55. And, and what's interesting about that is I'm closer now to his age than to being 28, and I actually sit in that chair now. I'm on that board. I, I examine, I ask questions of, of young men and women coming up in the process towards ordination. And I think about how he just called me on the carpet, but then couldn't back it up with anything. And I think to myself, I had, how dare you? Really, that's, I'm just being honest. That's what I feel like. How dare you? How dare you call me to something that you don't apparently believe enough in to pursue yourself? You see the emptiness there. It's not helpful at all. It actually really frustrates me. And we hear, like, so, so, so what I want to do here is you, you got to be able to get to the place where the only option is, watch me. I will show you how to do this, right? What does that require? Perfection? No, it does not require perfection. You don't have to have a perfect past or a perfect present in order to say, watch me. What it requires is authentic holiness, that's what it requires. Authentic holiness, meaning we actually become radical teachers ourselves. What's that? A teacher who's not just talking about 
stuff with their words, but is actually willing to demonstrate it in the way that, that they live. That's all we're talking about. It's just integrating what you're living and what you're saying. Again, this doesn't mean, doesn't mean you can't have any struggles. What it means is you're addressing them actively. That's what it means. It means you're willing to face them and work through them. And so, so you know, to the one example, you can say, you know, son, I, if this, I struggle here too. This has been a battle for me too. Or when I was a kid, this was a big battle for me too. And I'm going to work so hard at pursuing holiness or the restoration or health, whatever is a natural way for you to say it, that you're going to be able to watch me as I overcome this thing. You, can, you will learn how to overcome this thing by watching me overcome this thing. Amen? I mean, we want to write that kind of parenting off as extreme. We want to excuse ourselves from being the role model. That is simply not an option. Because you already are the role model. They're already looking at you. So you can either play the game and they're going to figure it out, or you can just say, you know what, I'm just going to have to do the real deal. I'm just going to have to be totally authentic about both my struggles and my victories and my pursuit of Jesus. I'm actually going to have to pursue Jesus. I'm going to have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm going to actually have to take this seriously enough that even though I'm stubbing my toes all over the place, I'm actually still going to be able to say, okay, watch me. <laughs> watch me. Don't step there because I just did and you don't want to do that. Step over here, right? You can still look to me for an example. Is that responsibility? Yeah, that's a whole lot of responsibility. But this is where life comes from. This is the source, man. This is what's exciting. This is where actually stuff, oh man, suddenly this matters. <laughs> suddenly what appeared to be some sort of maybe tradition from the past, now this matters because I am being looked to for some really practical, genuine, and spiritual and significant direction. So when I mess up, this doesn't mean I'm always on it, right? It also means when I mess up, you can look to me, and I will show you how to say I'm sorry. I mess up, I will show you how to repent. This is what repentance looks like. I know some of you men well. You've repented to your children. That's powerful because it shows them, right? This is how you turn around. This is how you repent and come back. This means, you know, I might lose everything, but if I lose everything, I'll show you how to start from zero again. You can watch me. Watch me as I start from zero again. Everything broke. I acknowledge it. I had a, a big part of it. Our family's a mess. Watch me start over. I'll show you how to begin again. You can watch me learn how to struggle. Learn how to struggle with hope and not despair. Watch me. I will be that one. I will show you how to struggle with hope. Watch me to learn how to fail but not quit. Right? Friends, this is just authentic holiness. This is the real pursuit of God. It's not clean. It's super messy. But it is super focused. And it matters. Paul says, watch me. Follow me as I follow Christ. So to sum up, Paul gives this radical, radical teachings. He's even addressing our thought life. Secondly, he's a radical teacher. He says, watch me. Do what I do. I mean, he's the ultimate player coach. Anybody remember player coaches? Nobody remembers player coaches. Okay, some of you guys. Awesome. Like, okay, this is what we need to do. Now watch me. I'll go do it. I'll go get the single right now, right? And finally then, how does he do this? Like what enables him to be truly radical? How can he even be close to serious about saying, watch me as I follow Christ? Well, he answers that question in the same passage. Look at Philippians 4, 13. 
Just a couple sentences down. This is what he says. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here it is. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's what Paul says. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So radical dependency or dependence, I'm not actually sure how you're supposed to say that, is Paul's secret to contentment. Radical dependency is also Paul's secret to being a radical teacher who can, with integrity and consistency, offer radical teachings. In other words, Paul is not trying really hard. He's not white-knuckling it, just trying to put together a few good things in a row, make sure he kind of has a highlight reel for you to look at and learn from. No, he's just like backed off and relaxed. It's a long-term, long-run obedience, right, for Paul. He's not just trying to get fans and followers by performing. No, he's way more interested in the real. He's going hungry. He's getting beat up. Watch me. Watch me as I suffer for Jesus. I'll show you how to do that too, right? Watch me as my friends leave and I stay hopeful. Yeah. Um, Paul's secret, to be clear, is radical and authentic dependency. He's working very hard. This is not sloth. Dependency is not sloth. He's working hard. He's getting up early. He's going to bed late. He's sacrificing all kinds of comforts. But he's in this partnership of submission to the power and the will and the grace and wisdom of God. He is in at all levels. No, he is in at a level that is only possible when you're totally dependent. He is, he is able to say, look at me, because he is totally reliant on another. Let me tell you a story, which I hope gives some sort of a visual for this. Um, I think all the kids are upstairs. Any five-year-olds in here by chance? All you kids are bigger. Any 29-year-olds in here? No, you're not, Mark. You're like 60. <laughs> all right, I need you to picture a five-year-old kid. That's like kindergarten. I called on a seven-year-old at the nine o'clock. Bad move. Um, <laughs> uh, and picture a 29-year-old dad. So young, right? All right, so it's 1978. Somebody buys the piece of property next to my folks' place. It's a three-acre piece, and it's got a beautiful, like, meadow. But instead of building a house on the meadow, they build a three-story house on the top of a hill. It's like a tower uh, uh, next, next to, it's like the, t- the highest thing around. You can see Sacramento from this place. They're, they're the Doolittles, this really fun couple. Anyway, they build this big tower of a house, and I'm five, my dad's 29. It's the 4th of July, 1978, and it's dark. And so he says, hey, Nate, let's, let's hike up the hill and see the fireworks in Sacramento, which is the closest fireworks would get to Placer County in the 70s, right? So I hike up there with my dad, and he finds a 30-foot extension ladder. This house was framed in, not finished, not occupied, just a framed-in house with a roof on top. So 30 feet, I asked Jeff this morning, is like six feet higher than this ceiling. He puts this extension ladder all the way out, and he's like, let's climb up to the roof, get on my back, and hold on. And so we climb up, and I'm just like, yeah, and I climb up. I got my arms around his neck. I got my legs around his waist, and my dad climbs. This explains a few things to some of you guys. <laughs> climbs up this, this wiggly extension ladder, right? And we watch the fireworks from the top of this tower house, right? And we climb back down. And then I go home, and I'm like, Mom, we climbed to the top of the Doolittle's house, right? Which was true to a certain degree in that like it took all of my strength and all of my focus to hold on. But in fact, it was my dad who climbed, 
right? It was my dad who climbed up the ladder. I just held on to my dad. I was totally dependent and reliant upon the strength of another. I was totally engaged, but I was totally dependent upon the strength of another. I, if you would have said, hey, five-year-old kid, why don't you climb to the top of that three-story house in the dark by yourself? I would have been like, no, that's impossible. I can't do that. That's impossible. I can't do that. But when my dad says, hey, get on my back. I'll climb up the ladder. I'm like, sounds great. Let's do it. I'm t- I, was, I wasn't a doubt in my mind. I wasn't afraid. I, I realized he had done something that was maybe less than wise when my mom reacted to that. When she, because I was there when that happened, and I remember that. But depending on him, friends, depending on him, I knew I could do all things. And frankly, what would be seen as maybe burdensome, if you were like, you do that on your strength, was joyful and exciting when I was relying on the strength of another. I'm like, this is an adventure. This is crazy. We're 30 feet off the ground. I'm hanging on. This is amazing, right? So I think it comes down to this. Here's the word to write in that fourth square on your notes. There's all kinds of ways you could write Paul off as extreme. He's not extreme. He's radical. One example of how radical he is is he models the faith. A lot of people teach about the faith. Paul is explicit in his modeling of the faith. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He models it. He says, watch me. His radical dependence on God enables him to say, follow me, and to write really radical teachings, right? He says, follow me, watch me as I follow Christ. That's, that's close to the root. He's found the source. He understands where life is found. Modeling, I want to say this, modeling is as core, as basic, as critical to living a life as a Christian, as prayer, as fasting, and as saying yes to God. Those other three really basic things we talked about the last three weeks. Modeling is as central to the picture of being a follower of Christ as those things. And it's not just for a few people who are called to be like out in front. No, modeling is is for everyone, all of us, all the time. I'll end with this, this passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, okay? The point is everything we do, whether it's like spiritual stuff like prayer and fasting and going to worship or regular stuff like making dinner or driving kids to school or working throughout a Tuesday afternoon or resting with your family in the evening, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it. Do it all, everything, every part in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? By his strength, for his glory, doing this all for you. Should we pray? Yeah, we should pray because prayer reminds us where the root is. Should we fast? Yeah, I think you should. I think it's a healthy discipline. Why? Because fasting reminds us where our place of dependency is. It's on God. Should we say yes to God? We should absolutely say yes to God because obedience reminds us what we're here for and where where the root is. And should we model the faith to others? I want to say absolutely we should. Why? Because modeling the faith reminds us and demonstrates to others where the root is, where the source of life is. You can look here for direction, peace. Whatever you do, Paul says, 
Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing something that can't be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shouldn't be doing it, right? But that's not the problem. You know what you should and shouldn't do. The real question is, it has to do with, can I do everything? Can I, can I do things that don't even appear to necessarily be spiritual in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Could I have that kind of radical dependency and, and willingness to then model and show people what it looks like to, to be a mom in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to be a, an accountant in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to drive my car or whatever, to talk to people, my neighbors, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That sounds extreme. It might in our culture, huh? But it's not. It's radical. It is root-like. And it is the life for which you were designed to live. This is the kind of real life faith that Christ has enabled us to experience. Not some sort of, sometimes I'm on, sometimes I'm off. No, totally integrated, right? Totally dynamic. Modeling the faith. Radical, close to the life, close to the source. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, I just want to pray that um, in a teaching like this, when we can focus on ways we're uh, disappointed with ourselves, that instead uh, we would look to you as our graceful king, as the true lover of our soul, as the one who has invited us to join you in this great mission of restoring all things. And so, God, give us grace that we need to do this well. Um, Help the parents here, the grandparents, those who are being looked to for direction by people who are hoping there's something real behind this thing that you call Christianity. God, give us all the grace we need to enter into something that is so authentic and so genuine that it is powerful um, in its reality. And I just pray that we would continually look to you, Lord, for help and strength and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.